This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. I am going to be reading Colossians chapter 3, verses 12, through chapter 4, verse 6. All right. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, the, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Thanks, Renee. All right, well, good morning, Leo Baptist. It's good to be with you again. Let me um, add my welcome, and let me just start where we started last time, uh, acknowledging what a fun day, what a strange day something like this is. We get a chance to gather to hear God's Word, to be transformed and changed under the teaching of God's Word, which is really why we're here, right, to hear about Jesus and what He's done for us, to be renewed as believers, and to be invited as unbelievers into a relationship with Jesus. And there's also this really unique thing happening of this job interview and this vote after the service of whether or not um, I might be the new, new pastor here and work alongside of Adam and the rest of the team. And so we have this real sermon happening and this beauty pageant job interview thing happening kind of at the same time. And I say that just to kind of acknowledge it in the room and to welcome you into that tension and ask maybe just by naming it for us to kind of settle our hearts a little bit so we could actually focus on what is the main reason why we gather, which, which if I'm helpful at all this morning, what you'll see is what you should be evaluating me on as a candidate 
is actually the main point of what we're trying to do in the service anyway, which is, does this guy exalt Jesus or not? Or you want a pastor who stands in this pulpit, you want a pastor who would counsel you across the coffee table, you want a pastor who would design programs and hire staff around one major thing. And it's not traditions, it's not denominations, it's not our preferences. It is this one thing, this one being, this one beautiful being, Jesus, and what he's done for us. And so you should be asking both, is the sermon any good? Meaning, was it about Jesus? And is this guy any good? Is he the kind of guy we want around here? And is he talking to us about Jesus? And so to name that tension is actually just to invite us into kind of the same thing. And I think it's what the main point of the Bible actually is. So we started last week just saying that Jesus changes everything. That's what I want you to know most about me and what I believe and what I value, that I actually believe Jesus changes everything. I've seen that in my own family, and I've loved a chance to share my story with some of you in some meetings this week for you to hear how Christ stepped into my family and radically transformed my home. I've seen God change. So I believe God's real, not because I went to some classes and not because for 20 years I've had a certain career, but because I've actually seen God change my heart and change my dad and change my brother and change my mom. And and then I've actually sat across the table from people and been in rooms like this where I've seen God change lots and lots and lots of people. So I am about transformation rooted in the reality of who Jesus is. That's what I think we gather for. That's what I think the scriptures are pointing at. And that's what this passage in Colossians is really about. So we said, if Jesus changes everything, then how does he do that? Let's just talk for a little bit about transformation is where we went last week. And, And I told you that Paul opens up the book of Colossians just reminding us of how beautiful Jesus is. And so maybe just flip over one page if you have a Bible open there. This is chapter one of Colossians. Let me just ground us in this right before you, I lose you or your mind starts wandering for the rest of the day. Would you just hear this? This is uh, Colossians chapter one, verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, which means he rules and reigns. He's the most important thing in all of the universe. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, catch this, through him and for him. They have their source in him and they exist to give him glory. And he is before all things and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, which is the church, right? He is the senior pastor of Leewood Baptist Church, always and forever will be. Men will come and go in this pulpit, but Jesus rules and reigns. He is the head of the body, his church, and he is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This preeminent one who owns everything, rules everything, everything has its origin in him, and he actually exists for everything else to give him glory. He is the one who actually came into our world, took on flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and by his blood, this passage says, he has reconciled all things to himself. That's why we gather. That's what we are about as a people of God. That's the invitation if you're not a follower of Jesus. It's not to come and join a church. It's not to give a percentage of your money to offerings. It's not to have some rules to follow. It's not to have a calendar full of events. It's to interact with this God who rules and reigns over the entire universe and who invites you to himself through the reconciling death of his son. That he shed his blood so that you might actually be forgiven and free. And if that's true then it really does change everything, which brings us into our passage about transformation. Paul says in chapter two, 
following rules and regulations won't actually save us. There's something more that we need. And so he reminds us who God is, what it means for us to step away from other things we've put our hope in, and how to actually follow him. That's where we were at last week. And I got us into that text by telling you a story of some friends of mine. We sat down to do some counseling, and they were really stuck. And it was a married couple who was been married about 30 years. And it's a real story that actually happened. Sometimes pastors just kind of conflate stories. That's a re- it was a real event. But you could change a hundred of those details and retell that story a ton of times. You could tell your story in that story of places where you felt stuck, of places where you were in a jam and you were trying, but things just weren't working. And you wondered, hey, where is there actually hope for change? So think about raising kids, think about your job, thinking about living in singleness, thinking about dealing with the death of a spouse, think about facing retirement, think about all the things you've navigated, all the times that you felt stuck. And what's true for my friends is true for you, is true for everybody. What we need in that place is Jesus. And we need him to actually interact with us and not just philosophically or ideologically, but in, in real ways that actually change us. And so what we've been talking about last week and then we'll finish today is how does transformation actually happen And then what I want to focus on today is what are the means of grace? How does it actually take place? And then what are the contexts that we should be living out this transformation? So so with that introduction, let me just pray for us one more time. Ask for God to speak to us. And then I'll kind of remind us where we were quickly and bring us into the rest of this passage. So let me just pray for us. Father, would you come now through your spirit because of what the Son has done? And would you be with us? Would you help us? Would you remind us of what's true? We acknowledge there's lots of things going on in the room, lots of things in our hearts. We, we carried things that actually have nothing to do with this morning in our hearts already. Things with our jobs, things with our bodies, things with our families. We have a lot spinning in our mind. And there is, there is this vote happening here in a little bit. So there's that on our mind as well. So would you just settle us around the personal work of Jesus? If all things exist for him and through him, would you actually let all those things orbit around him for the next 30 minutes so that our hearts might be united to who Jesus is and what he's done. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would speak in the room. Um, I'm not just naming like uh, as an idea that people get stuck sometimes. We would say all of us are stuck. All of us need transformation. We, we always, always will need transformation. So would you speak now to my friends in places where they feel stuck? Would you draw people that don't yet know you to yourself? And would you help us to engage and apply Way past the words that I say, would you through your spirit press this text down deep into our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So last week then I said, hey, I think there's a couple of things that happen when transformation is taking place. We talked about a rooted identity in Jesus. And we took that from chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, where Paul says, hey, if your life has been hidden with Christ in God, if you've been raised with him, it's identity language. And so we We start with Jesus. There's no transformation apart from Jesus. He's the one who does all the work. And so we stop as a people and first say, how does Jesus' death on the cross relate to what I'm dealing with? How does he actually speak good news and hope to this? How do I actually stop putting my identity in other things and remember my identity is rested in Jesus? Because when we put our identity in other stuff, is what happens in verses 5 to 11. We tend to protect ourselves, defend ourselves. We we tend to build an identity for ourselves in ways that actually harm other people or rank ourselves against other people or, or consume other people. We need something from somebody else to make ourselves feel okay and stable because we're not finding a secure identity in Jesus. And so, so that's an invitation to repentance. It's an invitation to stop and acknowledge, hey, I've actually practiced 
lots of ways of building an identity for myself apart from Jesus. And all week long, I'm hearing the promises and the allurement of lots of things that say, if I just owned this or did this or had this or this person was in my life, then I finally would be okay. So you hear pseudo-false advertisements for identity all the time, which is why he says you have to have your mind renewed, right? To have your mind actually set on Christ, to remember what he's done for us. And so there's an identity piece of this, and resting our identity gives us an invitation to acknowledge where we've put our identity in something else, which is an invitation to repentance. And so we actually said last week, for a church to talk about sin is not a shaming thing. It's actually a really loving thing. If Christ came to set us free, if he actually has already paid the penalty for our sin, then to proclaim that Christ could actually deal with the stuff in your life. He could actually deal with the places where you feel stuck. And again, not just ideologically stuck, but practically, physically, spiritually, volitionally stuck. In those places, Jesus wants to actually heal and redeem and change. And so the church should always be inviting people to repentance and renewal, which is another way of saying invite people to turn from where they've placed their identity in something other than Jesus and the fruits of that, which he names here as anger and wrath and malice and slander and sexual immorality and passion, all these things that happen when we're grasping for an identity on our own. Let me just stop for a second. Some of you might be thinking, well, identity really is kind of a young man's game. It's what you do in your 20s and 30s and 40s as you're trying to figure out who you are. And I was with some young leaders last week, and surely that's part of the conversation. How do we know our strengths and weaknesses? How do we know who we really are? How do we know what we should be doing because of that? And these were 20 and 30-year-olds just wrestling with this question. But I think the question of identity is actually a human question. We've been asking it since the garden. We've been asking, who am I and how do I relate to God? I think retirement brings a question of identity. Who am I apart from this job or this career that I've built? I think the death of a spouse brings a question of identity. Who am I apart from this person that I've been with for for so long? I think transitions and change bring up questions of identity. They make you ask, I've been putting my hope in this thing or I've depended on this to kind of tell me who I am, what makes me safe, and now that thing is gone, and now now what do I do? So I don't think identity is just for 20 and 30-year-olds. I think our whole life we're wrestling with who we are, what it means to know God. And the good news is, as transformation happens, we find it quicker and easier to go back to who Christ has said we are. Right? Maturity is not that we don't need Jesus anymore. Maturity is realizing how quickly we need Jesus so that we turn to him faster. I think that's what repentance is actually about. It's actually a freeing of ourselves to actually put our hope in Christ for the things that we've been looking to other than Jesus. So, so that's the first two sections, right? Identity in Christ and stepping away from what has kind of been a false identity for us, these things of the flesh. And he gives a clothing illustration. He says, like, put these things to death. Take these things off. And now in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And he names a different set of clothes. Instead of anger and wrath and malice and slander, which is what you clothe yourself with when you're trying to build your own identity, he says, now clothe yourself as ones who've already been reconciled to God. Clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And bear with one another as if one has a complaint against another and move towards forgiveness rather than making that person pay. Remembering that the Lord has done this for you, right? He's the one who's actually already forgiven you. And above all these, the most uh, prominent garment we put on is love. And it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. 
So, so he says, not just rest your identity in Jesus and not just repent and turn away, but actually move towards something that actually is real. It's living out our faith. So we said last week that this is not like a disembodied spirituality. Christianity doesn't just offer you ideas to think about. It actually changes you from the inside out to where you can move from anger and wrath and slander towards compassion and kindness and meekness. And there's a reference here to the Lord, right? The Lord is the one who's actually forgiven you, so you forgive. The Lord's the one who's been kind to you, so you be kind. The Lord's the one who was humble, so you can be humble. He was meek. He was patient. So Jesus is the reference point, right? Which is back to our identity. If our identity is rooted in Jesus, then for us to do the things that he has done is the call for every Christian. It's the call for us to actually engage with him. And there's a couple things in verse 12 that are important, right? It saves us from two traps. One is a trap of passivity, Different personalities and different religious communities struggle with passivity. It sounds like this. It sounds like something like, hey, let go and let God. Or, or just trust Jesus. And it's just the end of the sentence, right? So he says, against passivity, hey, put on then. There's action required here by faith to put on these things that actually match an identity in Jesus, right? You're not the one who's creating something, but you're putting it on. There's an, actually an action and a response against a passivity that would say, all we do is gather for an hour on Sunday mornings, we sing some songs, we read some scriptures, we feel good about ourselves, then we go about the rest of our day. There's actually a tenacious activity of putting on. It's against passivity, right? It's a war, the scriptures would say. So, so we put on actively, and what do we put on? Not self-righteousness, not earning our own identity, not, not doing our own best effort to make ourselves pleasing to God. We put on his identity, right? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So the other error is to think that it's through your actions that you actually build an identity. On one side, we have passivity. I, I don't do anything. I just trust Jesus and I just sit. The other side is, man, it's up to me. I have to actually do a whole bunch of things for God to be pleased with me. So he says, no, put on already as ones who've been chosen by God, who've already been forgiven, who already are seen as holy, who already are loved. So against a moralism or a religious righteousness that says the more I do, the more God loves me, he has a correction to that as well. So as we're looking for identity, it's not in the stuff that we do, it's in who we look to and what he's done for us. It's in actually trusting Christ and what he's done on our behalf, right? So there's this identity piece, there's this repentance piece, and there is this now pursuing what Christ calls me to peace. And we just say hey, those three categories, it's too simplistic. Transformation's more complicated than that. But if you're looking for handholds of how do I change? How do I get unstuck? I think what Paul lays out for us here are these three categories, right? There's an identity piece, a repentance piece, and a pursuing things that match the identity of Jesus in my life. I think that's war where we begin to change. So that's kind of where we were last week with a little bit of review. And this idea of clothes, I think, is really important. Let me just kind of say this. We've been struggling with clothing since the Garden of Eden. Right? So right after you have the fall and the great temptation, you have Adam and Eve go and grab fig leaves and kind of clothe themselves. Then they go and hide from God, and God comes after them, which is this beautiful moment of redemption, right? He pursues them. And he asks them, hey, who told you you were naked? And if you're not familiar with the Bible, this sounds really strange, I get it, but it's in the very first couple of pages. It's an origin story for us of how God made us complete and whole, and we chose something other than him. We actually believed that the limits he put on us were somehow him saying we weren't adequate, that, that we shouldn't feel that way. We should actually have God-like qualities ourselves. That is the temptation that our ancient enemy whispered into Adam and Eve's ear. And so they took the bait. They said, yeah, we should know as much as God knows 
We shouldn't be dependent on God. We should be independent. We should build our own identity, basically, is what they were saying. And as they took that bait, as they took that fruit, as they believed that temptation and lie, everything began to break, right? Which explains why things are so broken now. But what happened was they realized that they were exposed, and so they began to cover themselves. So that's in the back of my mind as I read this passage where he's giving this clothing illustration of, hey, take off these things, the flesh, and put on these things, the spirit. Because for our whole lives, we've been hearing, if you'll just wear this job, bank account, person, activity, morality, if you just wear these clothes, then you'll be okay, you'll be covered. The problem is none of those things can actually give us an identity. So in that Genesis story, God actually makes a sacrifice and clothes them in animal skins. He gives them real clothes. He actually clothes them in its clothes of sacrifice, of his doing to actually cover over and atone for their sin. That's the identity of a Christian. But we've struggled with clothes for a long time. And so what happens for most of us is we're trying to wear two sets of clothes at the same time. The clothes of the flesh and the clothes of the spirit, right? This is Galatians 5, uses an organic illustration of fruits of the flesh and fruits of the spirit. Remember last week we said he's talking to Christians here, so this is not just for those people out there. This is for us in here, inviting you to be honest, to say there's actually places where I've tried to put on the things of the earth and things of the world has told me I should have. So my, my value comes in my body, my value comes in my bank account, right? These things that we normally look to. And then what happens is we try to wear both sets of clothes and it just simply doesn't work. So do you remember, we're getting close to Christmas time, remember the, the Randy from the Christmas story, he's Ralphie's little brother. Remember Ralphie's the Red Ryder BB gun guy, you're going to put your eye out. Remember that, remember that whole movie? So Randy's his little brother. Randy is the one whose mom's dressing for school with all these layers of clothes and he can't put his arms down. You remember that scene in that movie? So Randy's just standing there with his arms out wide and he's like, I can't move my arms. And his mom says, move your arms when you get to school, which is like a classic mom line, like it's fine, you're fine. But he, she puts his arms down, they pop back up, right? And he's just walking to school. I think at one point he falls and he can't get back up in that movie, right? So I've had that image in my mind as somebody's trying to put on the clothes of the flesh and the clothes of the spirit and the clothes of the flesh and the clothes of the spirit. And maybe you're frustrated in the Christian faith, not because God's let you down or God's not adequate or God's not real, but because you've been trying to wear two sets of clothes for a long time and you can't physically and spiritually move. And you're just frustrated and maybe you feel like you look silly and maybe you're even embarrassed to try to talk about who Jesus is because you can't put your proverbial arms down. And what this passage does is invites us just simply to take off those things. I mean, take off that little jumper and take off that jacket and take off that extra layer. You don't actually need that. It wouldn't clothe you and warm you anyway. What Christ has done is sufficient for you. I put on these things as your identity. But we struggle with clothes. And so what happens is you're going to walk in every single Sunday just dressed in all kinds of funny ways. Mixing all kinds of styles and all kinds of clothing. You're going to come in covered with things that the world has told you to be like and things that the scriptures have told you to be like. What we get a chance to do as God's people is to remind each other of what God says is true about us and invite each other to unburden ourselves. What Hebrews says is take off things that so easily entangle us. Take off those things that you've been tempted to put on all week long. And you know it's not working. You're so frustrated. You can't move your arms at all. You're just crazy frustrated. So you come in, you hear the good news of the gospel proclaimed, and you're invited, not in shame, but in freedom, to take off the things of the flesh and, and keep on the things of the Spirit. That, that illustration is really helpful for me to just name what happens when we gather as followers of Jesus and what is the invitation of Christianity. So maybe you're in the room and 
watching online and you say, man, I'm not a follower of Jesus because this whole not moving your arms thing isn't just silly. It's kind of embarrassing or actually the inconsistency of Christians is one of the reasons why I won't follow after Jesus. I get that. The inconsistency that we live in our relationships is really hard to overcome sometimes. But, but maybe you could just go one click past kind of the person in front of you as a Christian who's failing and hear that Christ actually died for that person too to set them free. And the invitation of that person is a constant transformation and renewal for them to actually take off these things that are harming them. And then that same invitation is for you who don't follow Jesus yet. And you're not sure if he's even real or what he's asking of you. He's not asking you to get your act together and figure everything out so you can be loved. He's actually offering you a new identity. And not just an ideological identity, an identity that's rooted in his blood-bought sacrifice on your behalf so that you're at peace and you're free. I don't know what you think Christianity is about, but it is about kind of renaming you. It's about reclothing you. It's about giving you what you've always longed for, not because you earned or deserved it, but because Christ has lavished it upon you with his grace and with his love. And that's, I think, how, how we change. So we remind each other. We, we come to offer that invitation to people. We come to unburden ourselves. We come to, to sing and remind ourselves. We are, are an incredibly forgetful people. Again, this book is written to Christians, right, who need to be reminded, which gives all of us the permission to be honest about where we feel like we're, str- we're struggling. Okay, so if that's how it happens, then we have to just go, okay, so then, so what do I do? Now it's Monday morning and I'm ready to engage all these things and now what does it actually look like? And, and in God's kindness, what he lives in the rest of the passages gives us some means of grace and some context to live out our transformation. And, and I used this word means of grace last week and some people ask, like, hey, what does that actually mean? That sounds like, like Catholic or ancient or that sounds different than us. What, what are means of grace? And it's simply the, the disciplines that we engage with. So, so Don Whitney in his book, uh, the Christian disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of Christian life, he says this, think of spiritual disciplines as ways that we can place ourselves in the path of God's grace, the same way that blind Bartimaeus put himself in the path of Jesus or Zacchaeus put himself in the place where Jesus would see him. They placed themselves in Jesus' path and they sought after him. These were called means of grace in previous generations. The doctrine of the disciplines is really a restatement and extension of the classical Protestant teaching of the means of grace. The means of grace are what we do to put ourselves in the pathway for God to encounter us. It's how we set ourselves near the riverbed for God's flowing streams to actually be refreshed by him. It's what we do actively to receive what God wants to give us. And it's like flipping on a light switch. You don't make electricity flow when you do that. But man, you gotta flip on the lights so that the lights will shine. God's the one who does all the work. All, all you're doing is this. This is it. You just sit down and you engage with God. And what he says in this passage is these means of grace are his word, that they are worship, they are prayer, and they are community. That's what we see in this passage. So look with me in verse 16. After he's talked about this identity, he says, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Oh, I love that language. Let it not just be something you memorize, let it not be something you do for five minutes in the morning. Let it dwell in you richly, which I love that this church has people that have been walking with God for decades. Like if you're in your 80s and you met God when you were 70, you have been sitting by the stream for a really, really, really long time. And that is beautiful. There's ways that just through repetition, you've actually had these grooves cut in your heart where now you know where the water flows and you can sit by the stream of God's word for his grace to actually flow towards you, right? So we gather around the word of God. And this is how we do these three circles, right? Because the word of God reminds us 
who we are, who God is, what he's done for us. It lists ways that we actually have followed after our own way so that we could repent. It reminds us of what it looks like to actually be a follower of Jesus. So we see descriptions and hear stories in God's word of what it means to actually have our hearts transformed and changed. So we sit by the word of God as one of the means of grace, right? So the church should gather around God's word. The pastor should preach God's word, and not just from pulpits, but in counseling rooms and in living rooms and in classrooms and on street corners and over the phone and in hospital rooms. What you need to hear is the word of God. Let it actually dwell richly in you, right? So the word is a means of grace. And he says that we should actually teach and admonish one another. So there's this community part of this, right? It's not just the experts or the professionals or the staff members. One another, we are together in community sharing with each other what Christ has said. That's what community is about. To come, to come and gather around God's word and to remind each other, right? To teach and admonish, to, to instruct and to warn one another in all wisdom. And that, and that stirs worship, he says. So then we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? Hearing God's word should have this effect in our heart that we want to respond in worship. And he says these hymns and spiritual songs, we, we do this with thankfulness in our hearts. And I think thankfulness and worship are really close cousins, it's the appropriate response for being reminded of who God is and what he's done to have a grateful, thankful heart that moves towards God. And the problem is we live all week long hearing other things are going to make us happy. And then we feel the shame of pursuing those things. And so we come into this room or we come into small groups or we come into conversations with other Christians needing so desperately to be reminded. So he gives us these means, right? His word, which is inerrant, it's infallible, it's true, it's trustworthy. Scriptures would say it's, it's useful for everything, right? for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. Right? It is the authority. Our denomination is not the authority. Our traditions are not the authority. A pastor is not the authority. The word of God is the authority. It's what we build our lives around. And, and that responds as we engage it from one another, and then we respond in worship. And if you skip down then to chapter 4, verse 2, we see this means of grace of prayer. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Again, thanksgiving is the thing that ties this stuff together. So he says, be in the word, be in community. And actually this whole text is done in community, right? All these sins and these behaviors and these means of grace, they're all done in relationship, right? You need somebody around you to be meek and to actually forgive and issues with greed. And it requires somebody else both positively and negatively. So we live in relationships. And so he's saying, kind of be in community and then pray, and the language here is really beautiful. He says, continue steadfastly, right? Consistently, wholeheartedly, standing strong in prayer, being watchful, he says. And the same word Jesus will use in Mark 13 as he tells the parable of the servants who are waiting for the king to return. They're watching for his return and it changes how they live right now. So he says, as you pray, you're, you're watching, you're praying with your eyes open. You're praying, actually asking God to be doing something around you and doing it with thanksgiving, he says. So, so we pray in a response to God's word and we ask for God to do the things he's promised us in his word and our eyes are open, right? open be, being watchful, like noticing, engaging. And the idea that it's tied to thankfulness means even when what we longed for didn't happen, we can still be thankful because we know God's the kind of God who always keeps the promises that he's made to us in Christ. And if he didn't withhold that from us, then he surely won't withhold anything else that we need. So even if I'm not getting what I'm praying for, I can trust him and be thankful because what he is doing is actually changing and transforming me. And having my eyes open 
watching for that so that even if things don't go the way we hope, they don't go the way we planned, we can be watchful to say, when this is a disastrous thing is happening, this thing that's really painful, what might God be doing here? That's what it means to be watchful. To have your eyes open looking, say, I'm praying for this thing and God's not doing that, so let me look around and ask what else might he be doing? Why would he not be doing what I'm asking that I thought was in line with his word, that I, I thought would actually please him? If he's withholding that, can I look around me and ask, what else might he be doing? What's he doing inside of me? What's he doing inside of this person across from me? What's he doing in our world? What's he reminding us of? What's he re- like revealing about us? What's he kind of rebuking us for? What, what's he actually doing? Can I have my eyes open and be mindful and watchful of those things? So these means of grace, the word of God and worship and community and prayer. So when they go together a couple different ways, right? One is as we read God's word, we get a chance to pray it back to him. And that causes us to worship. And then we can share that with somebody. That's, that's one way. When we gather for community and you say, I've been asked, hey, what's your vision for the church? Um, it's a great question. It's the right question. And kind of uninspiringly, multiple times I've said, I don't really have one. So you're going like, well, great. What are we voting on then? You don't even have a vision for the church. What are we doing? And so I stop for a second and explain, actually, I think that the pastor should come and like a field should ask, hey, what is already here? What should be growing here and what may not be healthy that needs to be removed? Rather than saying, we're going to do this here, we're going to make this church like some other church or some other community or some other tradition, we should stop and ask, what is God doing here? And from there comes some sort of vision, right? So I've given that answer. It seemed to kind of settle you just a little bit like he has some idea of what he's doing. What he's saying is he has a patient vision. And maybe you're not settled yet, I don't know, but that's kind of the answer that I've given. And then I'll say something like, and then of course, we don't have to invent a vision, because God's actually already given to us what the church is supposed to be about. And I love that, that I don't have to come and be innovative in what the church should be about. Because it should be about these means of grace. It should be about transformation, exalting Christ. And this text says the way we do that is through his word and in prayer and in worship and in community. So those will be the things that we engage with, the things the church is always engaged with. So what I love is that Leewood Baptist Church has a unique story and a unique history. It has some unique pains and it has some unique strengths. And there are a certain kind of people here. And they, some of them have been here for a really long time. And some of them are, are brand new to here. Right? There's a uniqueness to this place. So of course you don't come and just say, I'm going to press this unique thing into one big mold. And I'm going to make it whatever I want. You honor the story of what God has been doing for decades in a place like this. And Leewood is unique, but it's not novel. It's not utterly unique. Right? It's, it's what God's people have always been doing. Right? So what we do as a church, it won't be some new fancy faddish thing. It will be God's word. It'll be prayer. It'll be worship. It'll be gathering in community in whatever forms those take. That's how the church should actually function. So my vision for the church is that we gather on his word. That would be a people of prayer, that we actually believe prayer is doing something. It's actually actively asking God to work on our behalf as a means of grace to actually do what he promised to do in the world. So we are praying people, praying for healing, praying for our country, praying for each other, praying for people that we love who don't yet know Jesus or those who've wandered away, praying for the provision that we need, praying for God to pour out his spirit in ways that are miraculous. We pray for God to do what only God can do. And we worship him, whether he does exactly what we're asking him to do or not, we worship him, hearts stirred towards him, because the scriptures say, as we worship and gaze upon him, then we're actually transformed and changed. And then we do that in relationships, right? We're relational beings because we're made in the image of God, who is a relational being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing in one essence in three persons, right? God is a relational God, so when he makes us in his image, he makes us relational. 
for relationships. So the reason why you don't just do online church by yourself, and the reason why COVID is so hard for so many of us is we've, we're missing that relationship part. We're missing touching and hugging and holding on to somebody and sitting with somebody and seeing their mouth move as they're talking. You're missing that community because you're made to actually be in community. And God will sustain us. God will be with us. We can be creative. But what we're doing is actually what the church has always done. Like that's, that's my vision, right? Those are the things I want us to give ourselves to if God calls me to be the pastor here, to work alongside of Adam, to walk alongside of you, to ask God in our unique story, what are you doing? But it won't be different than his word and prayer and worship and community. We don't need a novel, faddish thing. Which also means for you where you feel stuck, you don't need to go buy something new or learn some new technique. It actually is what God's always offered to you as well. These means of grace have always been available to you. And now at this point, you may be feeling some guilt. They're going, well, I've heard my whole life read the Bible and pray, and that's hard. And I try to pray, and I get distracted. And I, every year, we're about to come up in January, my Bible reading plan, I'll have blown it by the middle of January. Before the Super Bowl, I'll be done already. I'll be off my list. And so you, you've now heard so many times, this is what it's about. It's this simple. And if you're not careful, you hear some shame or some frustration. Like, dang it, then why can't I do it? And here's the good news. This watchfulness means even while we're struggling, God is meeting us in that place. So, so Wednesday, I sat down to read my Bible uh, I was pretty distracted, and I'm reading through the Psalms, and uh, I had to read the same song three or four times, and I still was distracted. And so I was like, I won't tell you all the things that were going on, but I was, I was distracted. So I just stopped, admitted it. God, I feel like a little child. Like, I feel like my mind is just racing. Would you just meet me? And so I just read one little phrase from Psalm 63 and then prayed that back. And it was really unspectacular, but, but I did the next little phrase, and I, and I prayed that back. I did the next little phrase, and I prayed that back. And the next little phrase... And I prayed that back. And now all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, I'd actually feel like I'd heard from God and interacted with him. And it was kind of that simple. These things, they grow in us over time. But sometimes they can feel really intimidating. It's like um, middle school boys learning to talk to girls. Super awkward right away. You're like, dang, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say. And do I start or does she start? And is this in written form? Or what what do we do here, right? So when I was in sixth grade, never forget, I called Laura. She was a twin her sister's name was Amanda, and the only way I could tell them apart was they had different colored glasses, and I remember thinking, red is hot and blue is not. That's how I know that I like Laura and not Amanda. This is how I kept them straight. It was that sophisticated. So this is 1989. I call Laura from my phone that had a cord to it. In the background, I'm playing Chicago's You're My Inspiration. All right, so some of you guys can kind of put yourself in that space. This is me as a sixth grader. I call Laura and say, Hey, I was just calling to ask if you like me. And she went, uh, I guess so. And I went, great, and hung up. That is my introduction to courting a woman as I'm learning how to talk to somebody, right? And yet those components are kind of still there. And, and when I got to a space where I was in high school and I asked Adrian now it's a little bit smoother, not much smoother. Our first date was an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet and a dollar movie, right? So I'm, I'm moving up a little bit, but not too fast. I'm kind of gaining a little bit of ground. Hey, but now we've been married 21 years, and we were away together for a couple of days this last week, and there were moments where, like, we were just in the same space together, felt really connected, didn't even need to speak. And there were moments where we just picked up a conversation that we'd had the night before or a week before and just caught right back into the space where we were. Now, 20 years into marriage, we feel way more connected and intimate, right? And I think it grows like that. And I couldn't tell you when I turned from this phone call, you're the inspiration thing with Laura to where I was with Adrian last week. It didn't happen like in one moment. It happens gradually over time. These means of grace, 
They, they cut uh, like a stream for us. The way, the way water flows through rock and cuts over time a path, we are continually changed and transformed through these things. And so it's, it's okay if you're struggling is what I'm trying to say. It's okay if it feels kind of awkward because even in that awkwardness, we get a chance to actually grow intimacy and be close. And we can admit, God, I don't even know how to read the Bible. That's an incredibly intimate thing to say. That's a beautiful means of grace to just admit, I need help, which, newsflash, we always need help. You never get to a spot where you don't need his help to engage in his word. So whether you sound like me in sixth grade or you feel really close to Jesus and can just sit in his presence and not even talk, God is using the same means of grace for us. And then quickly with those means of grace, what I just want you to notice about the next couple of sections is it's real to the life that we live. These are not just things that happen inside of us. They're actually meant to be transforming us and then played out into the context in which we live. So if you're asking, hey, pastor, what do you value? What do you love? What are you about as a pastor? What would you try to do when you came here? It would be that we would pursue transformation through these regular means of grace with hopes that our transformation is now lived out in our homes. He goes to marriage first as the first application. And then with our parenting, with our children, and then, and then this vocational social situation, which is super complicated to talk for in a couple of minutes with bond servants and masters. But we're saying, hey, with well, the places where you live, whether you're married or not, whether you have kids or not, whether you're in bondage or not, whatever your social class is, the spirit of Jesus is actually shaping you in a way that he becomes the reference point to all of these places. It says, in the Lord, because this pleases the Lord, as unto the Lord, Christ is the reference point for all of those. So marriage, parenting, we go to our vocation and social issues and then it goes to outsiders in verse 5 of chapter 4. Walk in wisdom with outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to engage with them and answer each person. So these means of grace then spill out into our regular real lives, right? It changes our home, where we feel most vulnerable, where we see our most seen. It changes our, our, our places of, of dependence. It changes our relationship with people that don't know Jesus. It, it actually is moving outwards. The transformation of Jesus is moving outward, right? He came into our world to reconcile us, to save us. He died on a cross so that we would go and make disciples and we would change going outward. And it starts in these most intimate relationships and it moves out in these concentric circles to that space to where the real transformation is actually engaging the people around us. That's what I long for, to equip a people to live outside this room their faith and transformation, right? Their humility with repentance, their confidence in their identity in Jesus, their desire to pursue these things that the Spirit produces in us. And they're engaging in the word and prayer and worship and in relationships with each other so that things are changing in real ways in their real relationships. There's a ton there to unpack. There's a lot about that, but just as a flyover, I take from this passage, the church should be equipping you to live in the spheres where you actually live. And the good news of Jesus plays there, it impacts there, it gets applied there. And here's the great news. All these spheres are still rooted around Jesus, right? Because the scriptures would say like he is our husband, we are his bride, all of us are brides. And we all have a father, all of us are children. And all of us have been slaves and he is our master, it says. We, we all live in that space. And all of us once were outsiders and we've been brought inside because of Jesus. And if you're on the outside, not knowing Christ yet, you are invited to come and trust him and come in on the inside. So all of us have been in the position of dependence, and Christ has come and met our needs. I think that's really beautiful. And he roots all of that in thanksgiving, so that we would be a thankful people when this sets in our hearts, and as we struggle towards it, and God's gracious with us when we fall down and fail, 
we have this growing gratitude in our hearts for the kind of love that God has for us that's changing and transforming his people. So, so Thanksgiving marks this whole thing, which is why I said last week, I think we should take communion every week. The word Eucharist, which some traditions use for communion, comes from this word for Thanksgiving. It's a way for us to say thank you. And we're not thanking him for situations. We're not thanking him just for the stuff he gives us. Although he is lavish and extravagant in the way he blesses us, we're stopping first at the cross and saying, I'm thankful most because of what you did for me through your broken body and your shed blood. This is what communion is all about. And then I thought about this when it comes to thankfulness. I don't know what you would say is the opposite of thankfulness, but, but maybe you would entertain the idea that it's entitlement. Like, like rather than being thankful for what I have, I need more, right? Christmas time is going to explode in our living rooms with that issue, right? With I want more and I want more. I'm not grateful for what I have. I want more. It's just part of the human condition. I think entitlement is where we go in the flesh. And I think if entitlement is the opposite of thankfulness, then what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul's giving instructions about community, and he says, hey, don't come and take communion in an unworthy manner. What's going on there is they were being selfish and they were jumping in line and they were eating everything before somebody else got there. They felt entitled so not taking communion in an unworthy manner is not about you getting yourself worthy, like confessing all your sins, which is how I heard growing up. We want to take it once a quarter because you've got to take enough time to actually confess all your sins so you can be worthy to come and take communion. The problem with that is communion is a declaration that we're not worthy, that we couldn't be worthy, that we couldn't do enough and try hard enough and perform well enough to actually make ourselves worthy. Christ had to die in our place. So to, to take communion in unworthy manners, take it in an entitled way, saying, I don't know if I even need this. To take communion in a worthy manner is to say, oh, this is my hope. This is the way I start to kind of apply God's word. This is my only hope to move forward this week is to actually set my affections on Christ and to receive his broken body and shed blood as the only thing that gives me an identity and makes me right with God. And if that's where you are, then you're a Christian, and I invite you to come and take communion. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, communion is reserved for those who do trust Jesus. So just the way the hospitality, let me just say, don't take communion with us this morning if you're not a follower of Jesus. But you can sit in your pew and pray. You can ask God to give you faith to believe. You can ask him to stir your heart. That's a really appropriate way. And actually, I would invite you just to trust him for the very first time. If you're not a follower of Christ, don't, don't take communion. It would just be an empty ritual. But if you are a follower of Jesus, take communion as a reminder for you of where your hope lies, of what you most need to hear this beautiful declaration that Christ is preeminent and he reconciled you to himself through the death of his son, that is your hope. So you were given these little cups as you came in. I'm going to give us just a second. Roxanne's going to play. I'm going to give you a second just to kind of ask God to help and to speak to you and maybe cultivate some thankfulness. It'll also give us a chance, if you didn't get communion supplies, to go back. There's a little basket by the screen back there. And this little packet is the gluten-free deal. And so I think we'll be able to figure it out. You can kind of peel it off without touching the gluten if you have that allergy there. So let me just give us a second. Roxanne just going to play for 60 seconds. Just pray. Thank God for who he is. I'll come back and lead us through communion, and then we'll sing and we'll be done. Let me just pray. Jesus, for now, would you come and speak? Would you come and help us? Would you speak over us the beauty of your broken body and your shed blood that gives us a hope and an identity? Your church is actually built around that declaration, so we ask now that it would transform and change us as we remember what you've done together in this place. God, I invite those who don't yet know you to receive you. So would you pour out your spirit on them in ways that they're able to believe this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.
thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.